We're on uh, number nine, as uh, Heather uh, mentioned some moments ago. We're just over halfway through. We've called it Just Jesus because we've wanted to get back to just Jesus, to what he says, to what he uh, portrays of God through his life and testimony, rather than to spend our time focusing on what we think Jesus was like and what other people say that he was like. And a, a number of things startle me about the journey that we're on. The first thing that startles me is the more I understand about Jesus, the more misunderstood I think he has been by the church, let alone those outside of the faith. The kind of Jesus that we readily picture in our minds, the kind of Jesus that we confess by the way that we talk about him, so often doesn't align very accurately or very smoothly with the kind of Jesus we read about in the Gospels. That's the first uh, big thing for me in this journey. The second big thing in this journey is that the more I understand about Jesus and who he was, the more I understand how far away I am from his way and his purpose in our lives and in our world. And as we've gone week by week, taking little aspects of Jesus or big aspects of Jesus and, and looking at them through our time together, we need all the time to hold that uh, we don't put one above the other. We hold all of these things in tension and that can be a struggle for us. So one week we, we talk about how extreme Jesus is on sin and we get all excited about how, how, how uh, cross we should be about sin and how destructive it is in our lives. And then the next week we pick up this incredible theme of grace. And as we grab hold of grace with this hand, it's so easy to let go of sin in the other hand. And, and it's a bit like that this morning. As we grab hold of something about Jesus, it's easy to let go of some of the other things that we've been learning and understanding about him. And the total genius of Jesus is that he held all of these things in perfect equilibrium in his life. We are used to there being contradictions in our lives. There was no contradiction in his we are so comfortable with us acting in one way in a particular situation and acting in another way in a different situation which seemingly is in contradiction to the first way and we live with that. We are used to it in our fallenness, in our fallen world and so we accept, well, sometimes I'm like this and sometimes I'm like that. It doesn't all add up, but hey. But Jesus' life adds up uniquely and perfectly. And so when we stress one truth, we cannot diminish another in order to support it. We need to hold them all in tension together. Such was his uh, brilliance. And so as we look at this issue of confrontation and the way Jesus confronted things, the church is often when it's gone about confrontation, done it in a very bad way because it's held on to that truth while letting go of some of the others. And let's bear that in mind as we go. So let's explore this uh, together. In dominant and popular theme, Jesus is meek and mild. Lots of the hymns, good hymns, that have come out of the 18th century, for example, emphasize particularly Jesus being meek and mild. We will have learnt those songs in Sunday school if we're of a certain generation here. We will have prayed prayers at bedtime that express that sentiment if we are of a certain generation as well. Was Jesus meek and mild? No. 
I think it's very hard to read the Gospels and find a Jesus that's meek and mild. You may, and this is the the verses that are referred to, you may regard Jesus as allowing the children to come and sit on his knee as a particular meek and mild moment. Maybe it was. But the overwhelming thrust of the gospel stories, if you're uh, reading them, and I I hope you're still reading them, doesn't matter where you are in the plan, just keep reading them from uh, where you are, is that here was a very strong and passionate man, physically maybe, but emotionally certainly, you don't get the impression most of the time that he was meek and mild. Our assumption, I think, that Jesus is meek and mild says much more about the way we've become as Christians than perhaps it ever says about who Jesus actually was. The typical image of a Christian is someone who is meek and mild, especially as a bloke. To be a Christian and a bloke, you've got to be very meek and, uh, and wimpy and effeminate and open toe sandals really help and all of that kind of image. And I wonder whether we've got this image of what it is to be a a Christian or maybe a Christian man and we're pushing that back onto Jesus rather than saying, what was Jesus like? Maybe we can push that back onto us. So Jesus, meek and mild, well, is it true? Uh, Let's uh, turn to some passages to have a look. Maybe you've got the Bibles open in uh, front of you where Frank uh, read from some moments ago. I have an apology to make to all those sitting upstairs. So if you're sitting downstairs, you can put your hands over your ears, you can do something else. My apologies to all of you who are sitting upstairs. I've been preaching here for 13 years. And it was only last Sunday that I realised that there aren't Bibles in the pews in front of you. True? Who knew that down here? See, none of it's like a different world, a couple of you that went, like a different world. My apologies for saying reach to the Bible in front of you when there is none. So you have my permission to get up and find a Bible over in the corners and, and grab it, but no doubt you've been doing that for years anyway. So my apologies to you. Let's get this open, page 992 in the NIV, and see what Jesus is saying here when he's talking to uh, the Pharisees. And we had all those woes. Woe to you, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. I was going to read some of these verses from the message, but in a sense, Frank has beaten me to it by reading from the New Living Translation. To help shake us out of our familiar comfort zone with these words, to understand something of the impact they might have had. This is a totally brilliant attack on the Pharisees, as you would expect Jesus to be capable of. Whitewashed tombs, or if you're familiar with an older translation, whitewashed sepulchres. We need to understand a bit of the background. In the ancient uh, Near East, they buried people in caves or in uh, uh, areas cut out of the rock or in ravines. And so, uh, when a body would be laid in a, in a cave or in, a, in a, perhaps a secluded part under a, under a rock or, or wherever it might uh, be, 
Very quickly, because of the heat, the body would decay and so on. Now, obviously, there were some serious health issues about that taking place, which is one of the reasons the Jews were so hot on cleanliness. A decaying body was unclean. We can understand that physically, but more than that, for a Jew whose whose whole focus of life was on ritual cleanliness, ceremonial cleanliness, uh, a, a, a decaying body was very unclean. And if you came into a, a contact with a corpse, you were regarded to be ceremonially unclean for at least seven days. That's what it says in the Old Testament. Now, normally, this was not a problem. Because if you lived in a village, you you knew who died and you knew where they were buried. So you knew that that down around there in that particular cave, you didn't go because that's where someone or a family or whatever uh, had been buried. However, every year at Passover, thousands of people would walk through the countryside heading to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the big festival you had a problem. Thousands of people walking through the countryside had no idea where these graves would be because they could be anywhere and would find themselves stumbling across a grave. The problem with that, they became ceremonially unclean, but for goodness sake, they were on the way to the Passover and so it was a disaster. So, in order to stop this happening, a month before Passover, the village would paint, would whitewash these tombs, these grave areas, as a sign that what lay behind them was unclean and therefore to be avoided. Jesus says, you're like those tombs. The more you fuss about your outside, the more you make a show of it, it's almost like by painting your outside, by whitewashing your face and your posh dress, you are giving away how dirty you are inside. Your pretense at being righteous, your pretense at living the life that we should be drawn to, has become to us a sign of a life to be avoided. It was cutting, it was stinging, it was profound. Everything that a Pharisee would not want to be associated with, namely uncleanliness, Jesus was saying, your facade is hiding the uncleanliness inside you. So what do we make of this? Has Jesus forgotten all about grace? Is this a very bad day for Jesus when he's just had enough of it all and he's letting rip? Has he allowed the feelings that he has to get the better of him? Well, turn with me again to another passage, page 983. It's just a few uh, pages back, Matthew chapter 16. And then we have the passage that uh, many of us perhaps will be familiar with, when Jesus asks Peter what the people think, well, asks the whole disciples actually, what, who the people think that he is. It was the verse, verses that we looked at at the beginning of this uh, series. And, and Peter, to be fair, has answered very well. He's got a big tick from Jesus. He said, <coughs> you are the Christ, the Son of the living, excuse me, the living God. But then almost immediately after that, we see Jesus turning to Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Where's the grace? Where's the love? 
Has Jesus just had a guts full of these disciples' attitude? Has he let rip again? Well, turn towards the end of the Bible to page 1236, which is the book of Revelation. And when you get there, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus is sending a message to several different churches, seven churches in all. And what we have here in Revelation 3 verse 14 onwards is the letter that he was sending to the church at Laodicea. And he says some uh, things about them, but uh, pertinent to our discussion this morning at verse 15, he says, I know your deeds. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you, quite literally to vomit you, out of my mouth. That's not exactly religious language. But it's the language that we find Jesus using, trying to express something that he believes is going on in that church. Again, where's the grace? Is it an off day? How do we we make sense of, of the strength of the language and the severity with which he's confronting these people? Uh, And then finally, back into the Gospels, page 1065. Page 1065 in John chapter 2. We get a little story there of Jesus doing something that we generally don't think that he did. That generally we find surprising. It says that in the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Verse 15 of John chapter 2. So he made a whip out of cords. A whip. How often do you think of Jesus with a whip in his hand? A whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? You don't often see portrayals of Jesus with a whip in his hand. It's more Indiana Jones than songs of praise, don't you think? More Sunday morning karate club than Sunday morning church. So was this a mad moment? Are all these moments caused by a a bad pizza the night before or or, or just something getting on top of him and every now and again Jesus explodes in this way that is so inconsistent, it might seem to us, with the rest of his life? Or is it deeply in character? To put the question another way, was Jesus any less loving when he cleared the temple than when he healed the leper? Was Jesus any more loving when he died on the cross than when he was ranting at the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23 where we began? More or less loving when he reinstated Peter at the end of the Gospels rather than telling him he's like Satan in the middle of them? We must face the answer, no. Jesus is consistent through and through. He's consistent because Jesus is God himself, the Word becoming flesh. God coming and living among us. And God cannot be divided against himself. God cannot act out of his character. We've seen his glory. We've seen his God reality. The God reality of the one and only who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. The phrase we'll come back to a little later on. So this word was with God and this word was God. And if we hold to that truth, and as we saw, I think, in the second sermon, or might have been the third of this series, that Jesus can only be God, or a total devilish liar. You might remember that Sunday. If we hold that he's God, he cannot act against himself. And so we read that the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. The true light. Not a a, a sign of the light or part of the light, but the true light. All that you get in these stories, John is saying, is part of the true wisdom, the perfect, undisputed, undivided character of God. And he goes on later in life when his beard is long and grey. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so as we look at these stories about Jesus, our initial reaction might be to say, well that was really good but I'm not sure about this. We're challenged to say, this is the complete revelation, the complete understanding of who God is. He cannot act against himself. God cannot by definition act outside his own character. Or to put it another way, in Christ we have all the fullness of God. Because, in the end, God, we read, is love. And if God is love, and Jesus is the full, perfect revelation of God, because God is uh, completely revealed in Jesus, then we have to accept that everything that Jesus did was born out of love, even if maybe we don't readily see it yet, maybe we will by the end, I hope, or understand it. You see, there is a common thread that runs through all of these kind of verses. And the common thread that runs through all these events is the love that not only sent Jesus from heaven to be the saviour of the world, but the common thread is that same love in Jesus still reaching out to save, to reach, to offer to the people that he was speaking to. You see, Jesus came, we're told, with grace, the offer of forgiveness and salvation, grace and truth, and truth. And what we see Jesus bringing to bear in those situations is the truth. Because grace can only operate when there is truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. It would not have been loving for Jesus to disguise the truth or to hide the truth from people in any way, shape or form. To be less than truthful, (coughs) excuse me, to be less than honest would have been less loving. Grace and truth. (coughs) Excuse me. Now think about these situations for a moment that we've had. In all of these situations, the people concerned desperately needed to receive the truth in order to stop them shipwrecking their lives any further. In confronting them with the truth, Jesus was giving them the opportunity, 
the chance to change. The grace and the truth providing an opportunity to change before it would be too late. Now, if you are on a path that leads to destruction, the kindest thing that someone can do for you is to help you see the path that you are on if you cannot see it for yourself. And that's what Jesus was doing here. Jesus would not have loved the Pharisees if he had not spelt out to them in no uncertain terms what a mess they were making of their lives and how far they were from God's kingdom, even though they thought that because of all their external pretense, they were quite near it, thank you very much. If he didn't tell them and left them to believe the lie, how would he have loved them? And if he didn't tell them the truth of their situation, he would never have given them an opportunity to change. The same is true, of course, of the temple swindlers. If he'd ignored their activity, how would they have had an opportunity to change? There they were in the temple courts, trading like they'd done every day. They had done it so often now, they they no longer noticed or saw what they did. You know when you do something wrong for the first time, and it's like, ping, you know it's wrong. Your conscience is is screaming at you, and the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up. You know it's wrong. But they'd done this every day now. And they could no longer see what was obvious to a holy, pure God, but but it got so mixed and so muddled. Why can people break into someone's house so cool and calm and collected? Because they do it all the time. And these temple swindlers, they they just just become the way of life for them. But could he possibly love them in grace and truth, but leave them to their own delusion? I'm sure they were angry at what Jesus did. I'm sure they were hurt by it but it gave them an opportunity to face the mistake they were making, an opportunity for change. Same is true, of course, for Peter. Imagine if Peter says to Jesus, you know, you don't need to die. Lord, may that never be. And Jesus thinking to himself, well, I I can't possibly hurt Peter's feelings. Maybe I shouldn't die. Maybe Maybe I've got it all wrong and dance round Peter's objection for fear of the confrontation. And we'll often do that, won't we, in our lives? We know what's true, but we can't quite get it out there because we're, we're dancing round somebody else's feelings. And Jesus, Jesus said, no, no, Peter, for your sake and for the sake of the world, get behind me, Satan. Jesus loved Peter by saying to him, no, you've got this all wrong, all topsy-turvy, all back to front. You might think you're championing God's cause by saving me from crucifixion, but in fact you're doing the complete opposite. Uh, And so we could go on the church at Laodicea, that they were so full of themselves, they got all their church services sorted out, they got their programs looking neat and everything, they thought they were hunky-dory, and Jesus says, hey, you make me sick. They'd lost it. They'd become so churchy that they couldn't see what they were about anymore. Jesus loved them to change. And all of these confrontations are motivated by this love. In the NIV, there's this word, woe. It's uh, seven times it comes in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and, and Pharisees. In the uh, New Living Translation that uh, uh, Frank read uh, to us, it says, what sorrow. And, <clears throat> and that's a, a more helpful word, probably, because the word woe is not something we, we use generally. I, I don't know whether you tend to go woe in your normal life in that sort of woe, kind of condemnatory sort of way. Uh, I don't think we do. Uh, 
I have a childhood memory of uh, going with my grandfather to drive the car around the back of the house into the garage. And there was this little dip into the driveway. And every time we used to go uh, into the he'd go, whoa, boys. And I'm going, Jesus goes, whoa to you Pharisees. This is clear as mud now. Well, what does it mean? What, what does it mean? Well, it's, it's one of those words that when we, when we get it in English, we can't quite get a handle on it because we don't use similar kind of language in our, in our, in our day. We won't be tempted to think it kind of means damn you. Damn you, you teachers of the law and you Pharisees. It's kind of in a, in a vengeful, condemnatory, shoving you away. I'm not interested in you. I'm going to show you exactly what you are and I hope you, you, know, you sit on the, uh, on the spit of it. It's not like that at all. The, this, this word woe does offer a verdict that you've got something badly wrong, but it's an expression of, of compassion. You've got this so tragically wrong, and, and I long for you to see what you just can't see. It carries a bit of anger, a bit of... It's not a soft, laid-back word by any stretch. It, it's got full force and power, but it's not judgmental in a, in a damn-you kind of way. Leon Morris, the, <clears throat> the New Testament scholar, sums it up like this. Woe to you is not a, a grim call for vengeance, but an expression of regret, it combines warning, <coughs> excuse me, it combines warning and compassion. Jesus is kind of saying, don't you realize, don't you understand that this action that you're on, this road you're journeying along, it's, it's leading to something really dreadful. Woe to you, look out, watch out, be careful, shame on you, what sorrow is coming? says the NL, uh, New Living Translation, NLT. As you continue on this road, it's longing for it to be different. It is angry. Jesus is sort of uh, uh, angry in a righteous sense. I'm, I'm cross about this road that you're on because it's destroying you. It's not what God's best is for you. I long for it to be different. We all know that being on the receiving end of that kind of confrontation is not very pleasant in the slightest. In the short term, confrontation like that brings us pain. It pulls us up sharp. It brings out all the wrong emotions in us. It makes us defensive and angry and cross and bitter and how dare they and all this kind of stuff. But Jesus would not have loved them if he had not pointed out in no uncertain terms the direction that they were heading the direction in which the ship on which they were so clearly traveling and paddling so fast was going to end up. We'll look at this later in our, uh, in our Just Jesus series, but it's why Jesus talked about hell more than most Christians do most of the time. Because he just had this overwhelming sense, motivated by love, that these people are lost and they're heading to a place he, he longs, he died to save them from. It's not that he's slow in keeping his promise about coming again. It's just that he's longing for people to turn that they might not perish. It's a, it's a woe. It's full of, it is a judgment, but it's full of compassion. I'm pointing this out to you. You've got this wrong, but I'm longing for it to be different. I'm not focused on the punishment. I'm longing for the change. Uh, uh, illuminates the seriousness with which they're are finding themselves. And we understand that all the time in ordinary life. If your child walks into the road oblivious to an oncoming car, you would not say, oh Johnny, Johnny, a car coming. 
Would you mind stepping back on the pavement before? Car coming. Johnny, car coming. No parent would do that. No responsible adult would do that. You would kick and you would scream because of the serious predicament that person, that child, obliviously found themselves in. And no standby would say, don't stare to that child. It's only walking in front of an oncoming car, for goodness sake. I don't normally grab ladies in the street. No, I don't. But one day, late at night, in London, not far from Chinatown, I grabbed a woman in the street. We'd come, I was with my wife at the time. I let her go to grab this woman. <laughs> True. So, we're, so we're, we're late at night. We've just come out of a show. Do you know what it's like late at night in London? It's bustling. Uh, people everywhere, cars everywhere, taxis crisscrossing and all that, uh, and all that stuff. Uh, and we walk up to this junction where we're about to cross and we're waiting because the cars are just going back and forth like Billy Owen, he pressed the pelican or whatever. Uh, I don't know the exact reason why we were standing there, but we're waiting the cross while all these cars were going. And I could see this woman out of the corner of my eye coming diagonally across, walking at pace at pace, with, with absolute seeming no awareness of what was going on around her. A bit like on films when cars drive really fast and then all the other cars happen to miss her. Well, she's walking like that at pace, all these other people walking in different directions seem to be missing her. She gets to the curb and steps out in front of it, not stopping, not blinking, not moving whatsoever. There is a car right by sort of where the aisle is there coming at speed. I grabbed her, saviour. So I grab hold of her, the car whizzes by, she seems to be still totally oblivious, looks at me like, what the hell did you do that for? And walked off. <laughs> she had no idea of the seriousness with which, uh, the seriousness of the situation she was in. Thought my actions were totally bizarre and totally over the top. Now I tell them to you in the call that day, they seem just that. But at the time, I thought I was being a good citizen of the United Kingdom. Because the context demanded some immediate action. And so with our children. Uh, you know, uh, every time you, your child learns to walk and stuff, and then they get a bit independent, and they're walking along the pavement, and you know the first time they look at the road, and they look at you, and they look at the road, and they look at you. They don't say anything, perhaps they can't speak yet. But inside they're going, can I? I'm going to. I have vivid memories of screaming at every one of my children at that point, even before they stepped on the road. Why? You see, I want them, whether I'm there or not, every time they approach the road, to hear in their head me screaming at them. That's what I want. I want them, every time they go near that road, to hear me bellowing, like to step onto that uh, road would be seriously wrong. And if you saw me bellowing at a child who was standing there helpless on the side of the road, you might think, whoa, how over the top is that? But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And so Jesus' love confronts. And there's a sense in which we need to grasp hold of this ability to confront in a way that creates opportunity for change. We see it all the time in parents and children in fact, Jesus, uh, 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 in fact, uh, uh, Hebrews, rather, uh, later on in the New Testament, talks about the way that God 
disciplines and punishes us, mimicking like a parent, and, and how it's all out of love. We haven't got time now, but read that passage, Hebrews 12, uh, at some point. It's all about the love of the Father. And if, if the Father is not disciplining the children, what kind of love is that? And it's the same adult to adult, isn't it? You see, I'm grateful to those in adulthood who've loved me enough to tell me the truth. Did I like it at the time? No. Was I a happy bunny? No. Did I grow? Hopefully. See, even when it's painful to hear, I'm so glad for those who've been bold enough to say, did you mean to do that? Did you mean it to look that way? Is that what you were about? I need that. Maybe you do too. You see, people don't love me when they tell me I'm good at something I'm not. It stops me growing and developing. People don't love me when my wrong behavior goes unchecked. It stops me from facing the mistakes in my life. People don't love me when they fail to be honest with me under a misguided notion of keeping the peace. It stops our relationships from growing when we become those kind of peace at all costs. And I hope as a, a minister here, you would expect me to love you enough to knock on your door if your life was heading in a direction that was against God's purpose for you. And, and you would hate me for it, and it would hurt you at the time. But, but please, God, for all of us, we go, I needed that. And there are times when I need that, all of us together, to watch one another. You see, your success is my problem. My success is your problem. Aren't we, aren't we in this together? So you need to see for me what I can't see for myself. And I need to see for you what you can't see for yourself. And we need the grace and the truth to make it a reality among us. Sometimes we go for this peace at all costs. The Bible never talks about peace at all costs. Jesus never went about a peace at all costs, grace and truth. There were times when Jesus disturbed the peace in order to establish the truth. And sometimes you can see in relationships, in marriages, in families, in churches, in communities, people try and keep the peace. So they tip round all the issues and then one day whoosh. Jesus said there's a different way. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. I'm almost done. But let me tell you about an organist. You know the difference between an organist and a terrorist, don't you? No? You can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> Everyone's laughing except... Um, no, no. <laughs> I was in Bristol and I was asked to go and preach at a church. I'd go and preach anywhere once, sometimes definitely only once. And uh, from the moment I arrived, they began apologizing for the organist. For the organist. Situation was this the organist, a very, uh, once a very competent musician, faithfully served the church for many years, but now very old and frail, was almost blind and almost deaf. 
Such was her lack of awareness about what was going on in the service, and the organ was right up in the top, a uh, bit like this, but the organ was kind of around the corner, around the side of those pipes there, on the left-hand side. They'd rigged up a pulley system all the way down to the pulpit, so when you wanted to start the service, you pulled the chain, which rang a little bell-type thing, so she knew, she could see and hear that it was time to stop playing so you could start the service. When you wanted to move on to the next hymn, you gave the chain a little yank again. Made you forget where you were if you weren't careful. And, uh, uh, and sometimes it was known that you would pull the chain and she still wouldn't see, and, and it was the, the duty of the duty deacon to make the long journey up into the organ loft in order to uh, uh, help her know where she was next. Uh, and, and it, yeah, they were right. It handicapped the worship, it handicapped the service, but there was something much more serious in my mind and much deeper going on. And this isn't a criticism of them as a church because in different ways, all our relationships make this kind of compromise. But I was going, why is it like that? And they told me all of the time, many of them told me why it's like it. We just can't tell her. We just can't tell her. And my question is this, were they loving her? Were they loving her really? Were they embarrassing her? Were they humiliating her? Were they loving her? There are times when love needs to confront. Oh, I'm sure she would have been upset. Maybe upset that she'd made a fool of herself for a few years now. Maybe upset because she was having to face the loss of uh, uh, independence and the loss of ability to lead God's people in worship in the way that she'd loved and done so well for so many years. But did they love her? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. And finally, beware. Speaking the truth in love, we say. Whenever you say that, you probably aren't. If you want to convince the other person that you're speaking it in love, you'll probably not convince yourself. It's not about revenge. It's not about speaking out of your hurt or your pain. If you feel like that, you're not ready. Don't do it for heaven's sake. This is love Jesus is talking about. If you speak out of your anger and your frustration, that's all that will ever be heard. We need hearts that are right before God. We need to be absolutely certain that in what we're doing, we're valuing the other person higher than we would value ourselves. We need our conversation to be open. We need to pray without ceasing. And there are no guarantees. This is the hardest thing, isn't it? You lift your head above the parapet to try and reach someone who's on a journey that is destroying them and perhaps they can't see it. Jesus did that with the man who was very rich. man who's very rich comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus can see that his wealth is what's uh, caught him up, tying him up in knots. And Jesus could have ignored it altogether, knowing what a hard conversation that would be. But Jesus, it says, looked at him and loved him and because he loved him, he told the truth. Grace and truth. And I guess the most important question, the biggest issue, is that if God's love in Jesus confronts, what does that love confront in me? What does that love confront in me? Jesus was to say, amongst all the things he says about his grace and his forgiveness and his acceptance of me, what would he say if he were to begin the sentence, woe to you, Simon, sorrow for you, Simon? Let's pray.
Lord, maybe we're qu too quick to think about what we can confront in others. We're just hanging here at the end of our service. In a few moments, we'll have sung our last hymn. We'll be off into the day. We're just hanging here for a moment to say, Lord, what would you confront in me? What are the ways in me that you would go, oh, I'm sorrowful, woe to you. What are the things in me that make you sick? What are the things in me that make you say, get behind me, Satan? What are the things in me that you would gather a whip and turn them over in my life? Search me, O oh God. And know my heart and see if there be any offensive way within me. And lead me, lead me in the way everlasting.